continuing uh, from 1 John uh, this morning. And chapter 2, we have what might, uh, John Stott calls this three tests of orthodoxy. I'm going to take it a step further and say that these are not just tests of orthodoxy. But in fact, what we have, I think, in John chapter 2 are proofs. That is, here are the proofs of Christianity. And these are the moral test. You know, he's going to ask, do you walk in the light? As, you know, Christ is the light. He says, by this we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. There is test number one, but I would say there is a proof of Christianity. The capacity then to walk in the light. The capacity to bring our mind, you know, what we will and what we would do together. The second is the love or social test, but we'll say, we'll call this the love proof. You know, do you love or hate your brother? Do you cut yourself off from the fellowship or do you engage in the fellowship? 1 John 2.9, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. And then the the third one is the belief or the doctrinal test. And this may sound kind of funny, but when I come to it, I'm going to say that belief itself is a kind of proof of Christianity. And what I'm describing here is, you know, we live in in a time in which people talk about a kind of incommensurateness between Christianity and and other things or any kind of worldview. But belief itself is, I think, a kind of self-substantiating understanding within Christ. Uh, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? John says, this is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. In verse 22 to 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. And so when the false teachers at Ephesus are taken into account, I think throughout 1 John, this is what we're dealing with, these, you know, maybe a kind of proto-Gnosticism. I think we can look at these things not just as tests of, oh, you're in the right, but actually proofs over and against this Gnostics, or perhaps to the Gnostics, of Christianity. So couldn't we say the threefold thesis is not that we're that here is the proof of the pudding, you know, of Christianity. Here is the living proof of the difference that Christianity makes. Uh, the proof of being able to live this thing out. The proof of love. The the proof of in fact a belief system that has coherence. Uh, and so I think what we're pointed to is something here is the immediate realization of the fruit, of the benefit of Christianity. And of course the first one, you know, the obedience test is the, the idea that if you think of the incapacity for obedience, 
You know, the incapacity to do what we will, the incapacity of human agency, and then obedience in some way that in and through Christ, in and through the gift of the Holy Spirit, we're enabled to walk as he walks. And of course, the obedience test is directly connected to love, agape love, is an immediate way in which we come to know God. It's the experience of reconciliation with both God and the neighbor. So actually we can't separate these three things. I'm going to talk about them separately, but they're all integrated into one another. And presumably this agape love will be marked by the characteristics of nonviolence, of peaceableness, of mutual subordination to one another, of self-giving sacrifice which are then characteristic. That is, this love shows itself in a kind of living proof that marks out the uniqueness of Christianity. Believing is a direct engagement. You know, this is not just, oh, I vaguely believe in Jesus. or But believing is a direct engagement with the historicity of the person and work of Christ and a process in which the reign of Christ is realized in human understanding. That is, belief is a cumulative effect in our lives, that it is the foundation, then, for an understanding that is an all-embracing, comprehensive understanding. Not that we have it immediately, but we're working this out. So rightly understood, belief or doctrine, obedience, that is, the embodied capacities of human agency. And agape love have a universal continuity recognizable on the basis of history, the capacities or incapacities of human agency, and the fulfillment of human sociality. So the social, the, you know, the historical, the idea of an, innate, an, an inherent capacity. And so this is why John says at the end of 1 John, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. That is, he's not just simply describing experiential proofs. I think it is that, but it's more than that. He's describing a, uh, the sense in which Christianity is really a kind of self you know, it is a, a thing that we experience, but also proofs to others. Anyone can ascertain in the Christian the historicity of the person of Jesus. Belief is on the basis of the incarnate, not the disincarnate Christ. That is, it's a living faith. Everyone can recognize the distinct marker of Christianity in agape love. Jesus says, they will know you by your love. This is a proof of Christianity. The restoration of human agency, that is obedience in loving service of the other, is its own testimony. The person that's able to keep their word, to keep their promise, to do what they say. So it may be that John is setting forth tests or proofs of what an authentic Christianity looks like. But he also seems to be saying that these proofs are to be wielded against these false teachers. And maybe wielded in our own tendencies to despair and uh, uh, the tendencies to give in then to a kind of false understanding. So let me break this down a little bit. I'll talk about first the proof of obedience. The false teachers are promising a potential empowerment based on a secret knowledge, gnosis, 
which will be realized in a disembodied seeing of God. So they're not talking about obedience. The promise is that human agency will take on a divine-like status, but it's a divine-like status that is disembodied. It's not carried out in the body. That is, these Gnostic teachers have no interest in walking as Jesus walked, of carrying out the love of Christ. And so John is offering something that in a sense we might think is more mundane. You know, they're saying you'll become like a master of the universe. But John is saying, no, actually you'll become a master of yourself. You'll become a master of your own embodiment. You'll be able to uh, walk this out. Obedience is impossible due to sin. And this was the point of the law. That is, the law did not result in obedience. It did not enable people to offer up love or to demonstrate you know, a life dedicated to God. But rather the law showed there is an incapacity for this. And so the expectation of obedience as a proof is, a, is in direct contradiction to even Moses' prediction about the law. As he gave the law... Uh, he said, well, actually, this is just going to mark the Jewish rebellion. You're not going to keep this thing. You're going to go back into idolatry. And so the Christian answer to this predicament is not, I think, as often supposed to blame or get rid of the law. The law is not the problem. The Christian answer is to address the problem of sin within us, the orientation to death. The false teachers... Uh, like maybe the false teachers of our own day, uh, they're going to talk about a kind of disembodied uh, Christianity. Um, this this idea of obedience uh, is admonition, you know, is really the law of Christ over and against the law of the false teachers. Or even John is going to equate, like Paul does, the failure of the false teachers is something on the order of the failure of the law. And his admonition for them to love one another is paired with the commandment not to love the world. If you love the world, you're in some way that incapacitates your love for one another. Love of the world directs our affection and our desire from what is real, God, other people, the reality of embodiment, to what is unreal. You know, we can ask, what do, you, <clears throat> what do you love when you love the world? Well, first of all, you're loving a completely, you know, when John says the world, and John, by the way, uses the term cosmos, a world, more than anybody, anyone else. <clears throat> and he's speaking about this in a twofold sense. There's the world constituted by human beings, and there's God's good created world. And he's saying this world constituted by human beings is a false world. It's a negation of God's good world. He says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. <clears throat> in two in fifteen to seventeen. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. If it's not from the Father, if it's not from God, is it real? No, it's unreal. It's a kind of negation of what God has given us. He says the world is passing away. What God has given us is not passing away. 
The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. God is giving us permanence. He's giving us an enduring love relationship. The loss of human agency, the loss of ability to coordinate the mind and the body, you know, as Paul says, not doing what one wants. You can resolve it with the kind of false teaching of the Gnostics, and they just say, well, the body and everything about the body is in fact a hindrance to man. And so what we need to do is is just believe in the spirit as over and against the body. This is, a, I, I recently have gotten interested in Scientology. I'm not becoming a Scientologist. I've gotten very interested in it. L. Ron Hubbard, you know, it's, it, it's almost the um, Gnosticism of our day. L. Ron Hubbard was a novelist and he wrote these science fiction novels. Um, and he, he uh, spent, you know, the, as with many uh, false teachers, I think L. Ron Hubbard came to believe his own stuff. He came to believe his own shtick, kind of, you know, because at the end of his life, he actually, uh, one of his uh, friends or disciples reported L. Ron Hubbard was trying to clear himself, that is, clear his spirit from his body and to achieve what he called the, you know, the final insight, the eighth dynamic. Well, actually, you, receive, you, can see, you do this by dying. And the Scientologists, I think they're very similar to the Gnostics of John's day. Uh, they, they were saying, you don't take anything on faith alone. You know, but you, you know, and of course in, El, in the uh, Scientology, you pay for this. This is why they like John Travolta and Tom Cruise, because these guys pay a lot of money. Because they're working their way up in the Scientology. Uh, and they're convinced that this is why they're movie stars. Because L. Ron Hubbard has made them movie stars. And so they'll, they still talk to Ron, by the way, you know, even though he's been dead many years now. Um, that is, the certainty of the false teaching is a certainty that's not based on faith. But it's based upon this kind of false experientiality. The Gnostics, the cults, the false teachers, they're always going to sell some sort of secret knowledge, which gradually inducts people into this supposed upper echelons of the society um, <clears throat> it's almost like you know the, it, well look at Tom Cruise for a minute he thinks he's a god you know that's, that's literally what he's being taught that he's godlike uh, it's the original lie you'll be like gods knowing good and evil uh, and in this the ultimate success will ultimately be found in death that's the final stage of enlightenment. You know, this is in Scientology, going completely clear. But this sounds a lot like Mormons who are promised a planet. It sounds a lot like Muslims promised a harem. It sounds a lot like many Christians to the degree that Christians imagine that Christianity is only about a future heavenly mansion uh, that we get to by and by, and they miss the embodied reality of Christianity. So I think first this is, if we think of Scientology, or maybe not that strange, 
I think we're very close to the first century Gnosticism in offering something like a godlike status to people. What you discover in the details of these various cults or this various false teachings is what John is telling us is there is an enslavement of its members to one another and to an oppressive doctrine which is death-dealing in its application. One of the members reports that Hubbard ended his life in near insanity, trying to audit or clear himself. And what he's trying to clear himself is of these alien powers inhabiting his soul. And the science, you know, the, it's strange. The science fiction writer came to believe his own stuff, his own fiction. And it became more than he could bear. The f- promised freedom of the cult is absent even in its founder. What I would say is there's the disproof. And by the same token, the proof of Christianity is in the capacity to live this thing out. In the absence of rules, you know, it's not that in Christianity we have this system of rules and we work our way up. Not, not again to say that we, as we were talking, we need rules, we need law as a kind of guide, as Paul talks about it, to bring us into maturity. But once we are brought into faith in Christ, the members of Christ are brought into all truth. I think that the church is going to be characterized by a high degree of fluidity. The result will be a kind of maybe a messiness about things, a great flexibility, a lack of sectarian rigidity. That is, the focus will not be on law keeping. Uh, It won't be on the hierarchy of the church. It won't be upon the power of, you know, the various positions in the church. The reason why sects and cults and false teachers need law and organization is simple. Without behavior rules and authoritative ways of enforcing them, you don't have the rigid boundaries and the you know, the very oppositional stances that they're, they're picturing. This, is a, this may be an odd illustration, but in, in Japan, I think, I think it's just true that every group falls into this law-keeping. In Japan, do you know what the Yakuza are? They're the mafia, the Japanese mafia. It is one of the most rigid societies you will ever meet. And when you see a, you see a, a, a mafioso or a Yakuza on the train, you know who they are immediately because they're always immaculately dressed, very often wearing a tie. Uh, Sometimes they're missing fingers because if you break the rules, they cut off a portion of your finger. Uh, And so you you know immediately you probably want to go to another car on the train uh, if if you see one of these guys because they're violent. The same thing, there's a whole group of people. There's the junior mafia, the Bosozoku. You know, they're the kind of wild ones. You know, in in the States we have the, you know, the guys riding around the Harley Davidsons. In uh, in Japan they're riding around on Hondas and Suzukis. But it's the same thing. It's this rigid, organized group of people. And you can tell them when you see them because it's a very rigid sort of thing. That... 
cults, human organizations, false teachers, they all fall into a kind of rigid law-keeping hierarchy. I think that the church is not to be characterized by these things. And of course, what's being held out is always some false understanding. You know, sort of like, Coke is it. Well, there is no it there. There is no going clear. There is no real secret knowledge. But rather, this is simply the darkness. This is the negation. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning, John says. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. His seed, the seed of God, abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. This is a proof. This is a living proof. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Being a follower of Christ, walking in the light, loving the brother, that's not just a test. That's a proof. That's a living out of the pudding of Christianity. The universality of the cross, you know, the, the idea of what's happening at the cross of Christ is the ultimate refusal of God and the attempt to create an, a, a world absent of God. Well, that's defeated at the cross. That's where God defeats this other world. Scientologists, you know, they're, or the Gnostics or the cults, they're continually, continually lured with a kind of higher level of achievement. The secret of success. You know, the secret of immortality. I think failed forms of Christianity too take this notion. You know, this is it. The kind of mode of salesmanship. Those who have, you know, I, I think it's there in a lot of our mega churches. You know, the idea, oh, we have it. This is it. Uh, rather than a devoted Life given over to an embodied Christianity. I think that many people are duped into a form of the faith that is in fact disembodied. And so there is an incapacitating nature uh, to sin that shows itself in this false teaching. And so that's why the proof is in the obedience, but the proof is also in the believing. John speaks of Christ and those born of God through belief as having overcome the world. The difference from a Gnostic notion of overcoming, I think, is in the identity of the world that is overcome. Because they're saying, oh, the world, this real world creation is the one that's overcome. But I believe the world that is overcome by Christ through faith is the world constituted by darkness, by the devil, by human beings, by human society, by the principalities and powers of this world, the ruling authorities, the government of Herod, Pilate, the religious rulers of the day, the rulers, the political rulers of our own day, along with all the prejudices, the racism, the hierarchies, the power that goes with that. Jesus has overcome that. We don't have to live according to those principalities and powers. So believing itself takes us beyond that. 
The prince of this world offers a religion of plenitude. You know, think of the temptation of Jesus that stones will be turned to bread. He offers us a, a, a personal well-being. You know, you jump off the temple and God will take care of you. He offers us empowerment or self-empowerment. All these kingdoms, he says to Jesus, will be yours. The religions of the prince of the powers that be, I believe, represent in a concrete manner the one that Christ has challenged and driven out. The world of the Gnostics, the Scientologists, the false Christians. Uh, The world they would overcome is the actually existing created world of God. The created material world of human embodiment. That's a misunderstanding. No, God is going to not, he's going to overcome the evil, dark world, uh, the false understanding. So the failure of love and obedience are certainly connected here. And they're connected in, do we choose the kind of knowing of, you know, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is the way that John describes it. Or do we describe, I think we can describe belief in Christ as a kind of alternative knowing. John says no one can see God and to desire knowledge based on sight in fact is going to exclude the kind of vision that is given to us in and through Christ. John says that Christ has exegeted the truth of God to us. He's available to us in his word and not for sight but for the ears, for hearing. And so the ultimate difference I think between believing and knowing has to do with the presumption of Can we gain this understanding through the eyes on our own certitude, our own basis? Or in fact, is belief in Christ the foundation of a true knowing? So what is up for debate here is the nature of the human predicament. What needs overcoming? What pains you? What is the source of your suffering? What is the human disease from which we all need to escape? The false teachers say, oh, it's your body. It's the law. It's material reality of creation. And that's what's overcome. The Gnostics are, you know, their knowing entails a refusal of the realities of this world, including death and the positing of an alternative reality. You know, death is just the doorway into uh, going clear or Gnostic secret knowledge. And John's concern in the gospel is to show that Jesus directly challenges the one who holds the power of death. Jesus takes up the cross to overcome death and to open up resurrection life. And he does this then throughout his life. He comes into contact with the principalities and the powers of this world. He demonstrates that he is the bread of life, the living water, the truth incarnate. He overcomes death disease uh, you know the idea of of, uh, he says I am that is he's the sustenance of life he's the very source of life and that's why John is going to conclude he says he who has the son has the life he who does not have the son of God does not have the life and that's the argument with the Gnostics who's got the real thing here you know the Gnostics are saying coke is it Gnosticism is it And John is saying, no, that's a lie. 
that in, in Christ you find true life. And this is immediately evident in the obedient capacity for living this out. And so John's doctrinal test or his proof of believing is not mysticism or science fiction. It is grounded in the historicity of Christ. The experience of knowing God rests on knowledge of the Jesus who came historically. John does not leave out knowing, but knowing God is on the basis of believing. That is, we know Christ, but we know Christ in and through the belief of his word. John says, you know, in the gospel, behold Jesus' glory. We can look at Jesus' historical life, his ministry. And even there, the same event, you know, Jesus does a miracle. It can fall on either blind eyes. People see some the miracles and some people dismiss it. They don't believe in Christ. What the eyewitnesses beheld or they failed to behold, it's not really the events themselves, but rather it's their meaning, what that points to. That is, the vision, the lust of the eyes is itself a kind of closed understanding. They looked at the miracles of Christ and they believed and that opened up a different world to them. So belief in Jesus does not refer, it's not all this intense devotion within us, but it's an acknowledgement of God's objective work in history through Christ. For John, it is not for knowing, but for believing. He says, I write that you might believe. And on the basis of this belief, then, you'll know eternal life. And so Jesus did many other signs, also performed in the presence of the disciples, he says, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Believing leads to life, to a knowing, and this is a kind of living proof. So vision speaks of, you know, a first-hand vision speaks of one kind of knowing. Belief is appropriating the word of God, and this is knowing and loving God and neighbor. The third one, the conclusion here, is the proof of love. And maybe obedience and belief, then, are all interconnected. John's Social proof of agape love seems to be the end point of obedience. We talked about this in the gospel, that agape is a word that if in a contemporary Greek setting, they may not have had the understanding that is developed in John of agape, of a self-sacrificial love. Um, John sets, sets two things in juxtaposition here that I think we would not normally juxtapose. He says that one, uh, uh, that, it, that God is either available through love, and if you insist on sight, you cannot have the love of God. That's an interesting thing. Love is not obtained through the eyes, but through imitating the divine model. Love and be- obedience are inseparable. We already got that. So love is, is so peculiar that Christians claim it is only available through new birth. This isn't an ordinary kind of love. This isn't simply a love of a father for a child, though that is the model. 
But actually, we only understand what a father's love is for a child when we understand the love of God the Father for his children. And so we understand who God is in and through the love that he's given to us in his son. Love of the world makes love of the brother and sister impossible. We can't love the world and love God in our brothers and sisters. And so John's admonition to love one another is it's paired with the command not to love the world because love of the world directs our affection, our desire away from, again, the created reality of, of this world. For all that is in the world is ultimately a negation of that which is in the true created world of God. This is, you know, if you think here, what is ultimate reality? You think of the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. The Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. And John is going to say this repeatedly. The Father is not simply the other of the Son. You know, it's not some sort of oppositional difference. But it's this mutual indwelling. And that's what it, you know, is being offered here in this agape love. That the Father and the Son indwell one another through the Holy, you know, through the, the, the Holy Spirit. And that will be one that you can participate in. That is, there's a unity within the Trinity that is embracing all people in the glory of God that's given to us. So it's, a, you know, it's no longer identity on the basis of difference. So the danger that John is warning the Ephesians is about, about is I really, I think it's a kind of selling. I think Gnosticism is a false Christianity, trying to sell a kind of false understanding, kind of smile big and say, Jesus is it. But what they meant by Jesus was really a false understanding. It was health, wealth, success, becoming a master of the universe. Uh, you just have to join up, pay your $50. Or like we said with Oral Roberts, you know, $10 million. Uh, and and you, you can be part of the end group. So John is saying he's turning back to an embodied Christianity, which does not hold out a lure of an in, in disincarnate life. It's not a private, secret knowledge like the false teachers. But rather, this knowing binds us together. Uh, in a mutual love. It's not the, the Scientology, the Masonic Lodge, the Mormonism, in which one is you know, inducted into a hierarchy of knowing, which creates a hierarchy of persons separated out on the ladder to success. And pursuit of this privatized knowledge, of course, is alienating. It's, over, it's, it's hatred, John says. It alienates. It gives rise to hatred of your brother and sister. The very desire associated with knowledge is one that cuts us off from life and love. And this false knowledge depends upon a complete incommensurateness. The impossibility of apprehending it unless you pay your $50 or your $100. Uh, But what we're offering in Christianity in believing... Walking as Jesus walked and loving is something that is a living proof for people that they can enter in and enjoy. And so John insists that authentic Christianity is self-evident. Obedience, believing, agape love unfold as an immediate proof. 
Here is the self-evident testimony or proof of Christianity. Let's sing her hymn.